0: with dr frank turek is it wrong
1: to impose your religious beliefs politically in politics or is there a separation of church and state are you supposed to stay out of politics if you're a religious person are you supposed to be involved or not why why do i want to talk about this well it's not just because this whole kavanaugh supreme court thing Uh, There was an article, a column in the New York Times uh, just a few days back. Actually, it was September 29th by uh, Dr. Timothy Keller. We've had Tim Keller on the program before. He is an amazing uh, 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 pastor. He's he's recently uh, retired from his uh, church in Manhattan uh, called Redeemer Church. I think he may preach on occasion. But uh, Tim Keller has also written uh, some wonderful books, one of them uh, an apologetics book called The Reason for God. You, you probably know who Tim K- Killer, Keller is, uh, a, a very, very wise pastor who knows how to preach to a skeptical culture. Anyway, he had this article or this column in the New York Times, and the title of it is, How Do Christians Fit Into the Two-Party System? And he says they don't. You can read the article to see what Tim says there. But I don't want to comment on Tim's article. I want to comment on a comment in Tim's article. And this comment was liked by several readers of the New York Times. In fact, it's called a Times pick. A Times pick. In other words, I guess this is uh, something that the editorial board of the New York Times thinks is a good comment to the article or the column that Tim Keller wrote. And it's by a lady by the name of Rachel Bird. She's from Boston. And here's what she writes. I'm just going to read her comment and then we'll comment on her comment. Here's what she says. As a strong believer in the separation of church and state, I believe that religion has no place in political discourse. I'm sick and tired of so-called Christians and other faith-based groups using their religious beliefs to influence public policy. You want to pray? Fine. Go to your church. You want to live your life in accordance with some religious belief? Fine. Do it in the privacy of your home. But do not use your religious belief to argue that your right to free speech is infringed upon when you are asked to bake a cake for a same-sex couple Provide birth control under your company's health insurance plan, deny science, etc. In short, do not use your religious beliefs to deny my right to live as I see fit, to influence public policy which denies millions of women, minorities, and children access to health care, abortion, voting rights civil rights i am simply fed up with the hypocrisy of so-called religious people in this country preaching to the rest of us who simply want to live our lives freely and openly without the burden of dealing with someone else's gods foisted upon us that was from rachel bird a comment on tim keller's column from september ninth, 2018 in the new york times and you might go hip hip hooray wow that was well said Wow, she really nailed these religious people, these hypocrites who want to impose their religion on everybody. Why don't they just keep their religion out of public life? Leave me alone. We've got separation of church and state in this country. Well, it may sound good until you examine it a little bit more closely. And that's what we're going to do here on this program and hopefully get to some of your other questions that you've been emailing me. And if you have a question, you can email it at hello at crossexamine.org. I apologize I can't get to all of them, but I try and get to as many as I can. But let's go back to this comment from Rachel Bird. Let's go by it or through it line by line. First of all, she starts out by saying, as a strong believer in the separation of church and state, I believe that religion has no place in political discourse. All right, let's stop right there. The separation of church and state. When somebody says something, it's not your job to refute what they say. It's that person's job to support what he or she says. So as soon as they bring up the separation of church and state, you ought to ask a question. You ought to use the tactical questions that Greg Kochel talks about in his book, Tactics, and, and we've talked about in this program several times before. You ought to say, what do you mean by that? What do you mean by the separation of church and state? What does that actually mean? And see if the person can unpack what that means. Now, she probably means, this lady, Rachel Byrd probably means, well, anybody who's religious can't influence the state at all. Is that what that phrase really means, separation of church and state? Where does that set, is that in the Constitution, by the way, the separation of church and state? And by the way, sometimes when I, I talk about these topics, I ask even Christian audiences, what does the First Amendment say? Maybe one out of a hundred can tell me what it says. most realize the separation of church and state is not in there, but they can't even articulate what it says. Uh, Now I don't have it in front of me, but this is what the, the first amendment generally says. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion, nor prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Then it goes on to talk about the freedom of petition and assembly and speech and all these things, right? So the separation of church and state is not in the constitution. Thomas Jefferson, in a letter to the Danbury Baptists in 1803, made reference to the separation of church and state. And he was writing to the Danbury, Connecticut Baptists to assure them that he did not want the state involved in the church. That's why he called it a wall of separation between church and state. He didn't mean that the church couldn't influence the state. He wanted to make sure that the state didn't influence the church. Well, you say, how did this get into our Uh, how did this get into the the conscience of the nation or the psyche of the nation to think that it's in the Constitution? Because there was a, a case written by the Supreme Court in 1947 called the Everson case, which actually imported this language that Thomas Jefferson used in a letter to the Danbury, Connecticut Baptists, where he used this phrase separation of church and state. And from that point on, people have come to believe that this phrase is somehow in the Constitution? No, it's not. It's not in it, it. It's in a Supreme Court opinion, but it's not in the Constitution. The separation of church and state is in a letter written by Thomas Jefferson. And by the way, if you want to know what the First Amendment means, you don't look to Thomas Jefferson anyway, because Thomas Jefferson had nothing to do with writing the First Amendment. Thomas Jefferson was in France as the ambassador to France, I believe. When the Constitution was written, Thomas Jefferson wrote the Declaration of Independence in seventeen seventy six The Constitution, as you know, was ratified in seventeen ninety one James Madison was the primary architect of the Constitution not not Thomas Jefferson in any event. the point here is is that the separation of church and state does not mean that the state can't influence or it does not mean the church can't influence the state. it means that the state can't influence the church if You want to go with Thomas Jefferson's opinion, but it has nothing to do with the Constitution. So you ask, what do you mean by that? What do you mean by the separation of church and state? And then you also want to ask, how did you come to that conclusion? How did you come to the the conclusion that the separation of church and state is somehow a doctrine that everybody needs to abide by, that it's somehow some sort of constitutional principle we need to abide by? Then you can move on to the third question. Have you ever considered? Have you ever considered? that the separation of church and state, whatever that means, is not in the Constitution. It's in a letter. It's meant to keep the state out of the church, not the church out of the state. Also, you may want to get the person to define, what do you mean by church anyway? Are you talking about a church organization? Because that's not what Rachel Byrd, the lady who wrote this comment, seems to mean. She doesn't mean like the Catholic Church or the Protestant Church, whatever that means. Uh, You know, the the baptist church the hierarchy of any kind of baptist church seems she seems to be saying that that church people ought not be involved people who are christians ought not be involved politically well where did she get that what why would you say that, that that people who are religious can't be involved in political life is there some constitutional principle that that prohibits that Does she understand that just about everybody who wrote the Constitution was in some way religious, generally in a conservative Christian way, although some were deists? Gee, if if we can't get involved in politics, then we shouldn't even have a country. We'll talk more after the break. I'm Frank Turek. Don't go away. Back in two minutes.
0: Thank you for listening to the Cross-Examined Podcast. This material is made available to you for free by the contributions of listeners like you. If you wish to support future podcasts, just go to crossexamine.org and click on the Donate button, or simply use the Donate feature directly on our app. Thanks. Should you be able to impose your
1: religious views in politics? That's the topic we're talking about here early on in the program. You're listening to cross Examine with Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network website, crossexamined.org, crossexamined.org. And by the way, if you really like this podcast, would you do me a big favor and go up to iTunes, uh, the Cross-Examined podcast, and put a favorable review up there? Why? Not because we need accolades or we're looking for accolades, but because the more positive reviews you have on iTunes, the more people will see the podcast. And we want people to see this or hear this podcast uh, because we want to get the word out uh, about the truth, about the gospel, about why Christianity is true. And that's what we try and do here on this program. We present evidence for Christianity and we cross-examine ideas against it. So if you would go to iTunes and put a positive five-star review up there, please do so. If you don't like this podcast, you never heard me say this, okay? Do Do not go up and put a negative review up there. Go up there and put some positive reviews. It would really help us in the rankings so more people will see this podcast. Anyway, we're talking today about this idea of the separation of church and state and this comment that this lady wrote in to the New York Times. Her name is Rachel Bird. She wrote this comment about how Christians and other, other religious people shouldn't be involved in politics. Don't impose your views on me, all this kind of thing. And we're going through her comments line by line and pointing out some of the problems with it. She said she's a strong believer in the step separation of church and state. Uh, but you know what? At the end of the day, th- the separation of church and state isn't the issue the separation of church and state could be in the Constitution, and it wouldn't even prove her point. What do I mean by that? The point here is, is that other than maybe some Muslims who want to impose religion, most people are not trying to impose religion. They're not trying to tell people where, when, how, or if to worship. They're not trying to tell people where, when, how, or you know what sort of of religious beliefs they need to have. We're not trying to legislate religion. We're not trying to impose religious rights and practices on people. What we are trying to do is we are trying to impose morality, and everybody's trying to do that. This lady, Rachel Bird, who wrote this comment, is trying to impose morality. We're not trying to impose religion. We're not trying to tell people they got to be a Christian or a Muslim or an atheist or an agnostic or a Hindu or a Buddhist. We're not trying to do that in politics. Now, some Muslims might be trying to do that. That's called Sharia law. But generally, Christians aren't trying to do that. We're not trying to impose religion. We are trying to impose morality. So you may want to say to somebody like this, have you ever considered that we're not trying to impose religion on people, but we are trying to impose morality and you're trying to do the same thing? In fact, all laws impose morality. All laws legislate morality. The only question is whose morality will be legislated. You can't think of a law which doesn't declare one behavior right and the opposite behavior wrong. That's what laws do. The question isn't whether or not you can legislate morality. The question is, whose morality will we legislate? And when people say to me, well, like, you know, you can't impose your morality on me. I always ask them, why not? Would that be immoral? Because you're imposing your morality on me right now. You're saying it would be immoral for me to impose morals when you're doing the same thing right now. But actually, the the, the answer I like better is to say this. Well, this isn't my morality. I didn't make this stuff up. I didn't make up the fact that murder's wrong, that abortion's wrong, that theft is wrong, that rape is wrong, that men were made for women and women were made for men, and the best way to perpetuate and stabilize society, which is why the government's involved in marriage to begin with, is to legally recognize the relationship between a man and a woman and call it marriage over any other relationship. I didn't make any of this stuff up. This isn't my morality, this is the morality. This is the one Thomas Jefferson said was self-evident. This is the one the Apostle Paul said, even the Gentiles who do not have the law have the law written on their hearts. This isn't my morality. This isn't your morality. This is the morality. And if you don't like it, you don't have a problem with me. I didn't make any of this stuff up. I'm not the moral arbiter of the universe. I'm not the moral standard of the universe. You don't have a problem with me. You have a problem with God because this is based on his nature. And if you don't like that, then you've got a problem with him. So I'm not saying impose my morality. I didn't make any of this stuff up. It's just the morality. And everybody deep down knows this. Everybody understands that it's wrong to murder people. Everybody understands it's wrong to, it's wrong to kill babies in the womb. They already know that. And they know it's a baby in the womb. Look, and that by the way, that's what this whole Kavanaugh uh, thing is about. The Senate confirmation hear- hearing. It has nothing to do with his judicial temperament. It really has nothing to do with what he may or may not have done when he was a teenager. It has everything to do with one thing, abortion. Roe versus Wade. That's what it's all about. That's what this whole thing is motivated by. That's why they're trying to smear this guy, Kavanaugh, because they want to make sure that somebody doesn't get to the Supreme Court who might vote to overturn Roe versus Wade. They don't want to put the issue of abortion back into the hands of the people where it was prior to 1973, because the leftists are afraid that the people may actually vote to restrict or outlaw abortion in certain states. See, it's commonly misunderstood. If you overturn Roe versus Wade, abortion doesn't automatically become illegal across the nation. The most probable result is the issue goes back to the states where it was prior to 1973. And that is that is where each state is going to have to decide what to do about the issue of abortion. Now, it's possible the Supreme Court could say, well, there's a fundamental right to life and and a a human being in the womb has the right to life. I think that's the right decision. I think that's what I, I think that's the truth, that it is an unborn child in the womb. But most likely, the court's just going to send it back to the states like it was prior to 1973. But that's not even the point anyway. The point here is, is that when you're trying to deal in politics with these issues, you're not legislating religion; you're legislating morality. Oh, sure, there are religious beliefs that coincide with moral beliefs, and your morality will be informed by your religion. But that doesn't mean you're imposing religion. I mean, if you can't impose anything in the Bible. Just because it's in the Bible, we couldn't have virtually any laws because virtually every law is based on some or one of the Ten Commandments. If you think about it, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not steal. Many of our laws are, are based on that very premise thou shalt not steal. Are you telling me we can't have laws against theft because they're in the Bible? Just because they're in the Bible, we can't legislate them? Well, we would have chaos. Yes, religious principles and Moral principles are quite often very consistent, but you can't say we can't impose them just because they're religious principles. Otherwise, we'd have to do away with virtually all moral principles, which means we couldn't have a government, we couldn't have a civilization, we'd have anarchy. So the point here is, is that everyone's trying to legislate morality, but not everyone's trying to legislate religion. So you want to make that point when somebody says, don't impose your religion on me. Then she goes on to say this, and going back to this comment by Rachel Byrd, the New York Times comment that she put in uh, on a Tim Keller column from uh, last week. She said, I'm sick and tired of so-called Christians and other faith-based groups using their religious beliefs to to influence public policy. Well, my question to her would be, why is that wrong? Why is it wrong? I just mentioned a minute ago that, yes, my beliefs or my moral beliefs may be informed by my religious beliefs, but why is that wrong? I mean, I might ask her, what are your religious beliefs? If you define religion as someone's explanation of ultimate reality, then everyone is religious. You have a religious belief. What's your belief? That there is no God, that everything just runs by natural laws? Well, where do you get morality out of that from? You've got all these moral principles in your comment here, about certain rights that people have, including abortion rights and civil rights and women's rights and all these things. Okay, where do rights come from? In fact, we'll get to that here in a minute. If there is no God, if your view is, if there, if your view is that there is no God, then there's no such thing as rights. The very rights that you're arguing for don't exist. Because without God, everything's just a matter of opinion. And you might ask this person a question who says that Christians can't be involved to influence public policy. You might say, um, where does it say that only atheists can influence public policy? Is that in our Constitution somewhere? No, actually, our Constitution has no religious test for political office, and it certainly has no religious test for influencing politics. All you got to do is be a U.S. citizen to vote or to, or, to, or to run for office. So why do you say that religious people can't be involved? You just want atheists involved. Well, which atheist? Stalin? Mao? Pol Pot? Only atheists can run the country. Really? You think that's the case? How is that not prejudiced against religious people? And by the way, would you rather go back to a pre-Christian morality? I mean, here she is talking about all this these negative things that she thinks are negative that religious people have done, when I don't think she realizes that over the past two thousand years the existence and work of christians has done some amazing things for society Uh, she just doesn't seem to realize this i mean if you think about this religious people particularly christians have helped abolish slavery, kidnap brides, child labor, gladiatorial combat, death games, infanticide, child marriage, temple prostitution, child sexual abuse, child prostitution, wives as property, fair treatment of prisoners, equality of mankind, and also abortion, which she thinks is a right. Well, if it's a human being in there, it's not a right because you're killing an innocent human being, and it is a human being in there. So Christians haven't failed to influence politics they've done some wonderful things in politics including getting rid of all those awful practices I just mentioned if you want to go back to before Christianity before Christians had a real influence on politics you'd have slavery kidnap brides child labor gladiatorial combat death games infanticide child marriage temple prostitution Etc So if you don't want Christians involved in politics, then who's going to get rid of all those awful practices? Certainly the atheists aren't. Oh, Frank, there are good atheists out there. Yeah, I'm sure there are. I agree with you. But what do you mean by good? Where does good come from? What is this, this adjective or this quality you're calling good? By what standard are you judging that? And how many atheists have been involved in getting rid of these kinds of awful practices? Not many. There may be some. I'm glad for them. Thank you for joining the, the team. There are even some pro-life atheists. Well, thank you. That's good. In fact, in one of my debates with Christopher Hitchens, I asked him about abortion, and he, he seemed to be more pro-life than pro-abortion, I will say that. But in any event, the point here is, is that to say that Christians ought not be involved in politics, first of all, is historically Uh, Wrong and would be historically disastrous. And of course, it's not in our Constitution at all. Everybody ought to be involved in politics if they're interested in a thing that they should be. I'm Frank Turek. We're back in just a couple of minutes. Check out our website, crossexamined.org. Don't go away. College campuses are hostile to the Christian faith, and three out of four young people walk away from the church once they go to college. That's why we go to college campuses and present, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist, in the United States and even all over the world. When we do this, we don't charge students a dime. That's why we need your financial support. In fact, over the past couple of years, we've been able to grow dramatically because of your generous support. And 100% of your donations go to ministry. Zero percent go to building. So when you give to Cross-Examined, you'll be giving to help us go reach young people where they are. Would you consider giving today? Thank you so much, and thank you so much for what you've done already. Should you be able to put your political beliefs, or I should say your religious beliefs, into politics? That's what we're talking about here today. We're talking about a comment by a lady who wrote into a a column written by tim keller in the new york times her name is rachel bird you can look up the comment i i stated the entire comment at the top of the program we're going through it piece by piece here uh and uh, the point here is is that she gets a lot wrong even though it sounds good when you listen to it uh just uh alone uh she goes on to say this she says you want to pray fine go to church you want to live your life in accordance with uh, some religious belief fine do it in the privacy of your own home." Now, I might stop and say, well, why? Who said? What if your religious beliefs tell you to be salt and light in the world, not just in your home? Because that's what Christianity exactly says. And thankfully, Christians in history have actually been salt and light in the culture. That's why they could get rid of all those awful practices I mentioned in the last segment. If you're not if if you're just going to stay in your own home, then you're not obeying the cultural mandate. To not only make disciples of all nations, but to love your neighbor by advocating for political ends that are best for everyone. And that's what Christians traditionally have done. One reason our country is in such bad moral shape right now is because Christians about 100 years ago decided to stop doing that. When they circled the wagons and became separatists in about the 1920s. And now here we are about 100 years later, uh, we took ourselves out of the culture, and now we wonder why the culture's godless. We have to be salt and light. So she's saying, just stay in the privacy of your own home. When our faith tells us, no, we're supposed to influence the culture and the world everywhere. In fact, Jesus himself was involved in politics. What do you mean, Frank? Jesus wasn't political. <laughs> no, he surely was involved in politics. In fact, Jesus went after the politicians who were the politicians in his day. Well, they were the Pharisees and some of them were on the Sanhedrin. And that Sanhedrin was the Jewish ruling council that was involved in the political lawmaking of Israel. And Jesus went after them in in John. I'm sorry. Well, he he went after the Pharisees in John chapter eight, when he, he said, your father is the devil. Imagine saying that to somebody. Jesus, you can't say that. That's not very Christ-like. Excuse me, I am Christ. <laughs> Magic saying to somebody, your father is the devil. And then, and then in Matthew chapter 23, he excoriates them, where he says, you've neglected the weightier matters of the law. Yeah, sure, you're tithing your spices. You ought to do that. But you're neglecting the weightier matters of the law, justice, faith. You're doing the things You're majoring in the minors, essentially, is what Jesus is saying. Politically, he's talking about this. We do that in our country. We major in the minors. We tell people what light bulbs they can't use, but we won't tell them, don't kill your children. We're majoring in the minors. So Jesus was involved in politics. So Rachel Bird, this lady uh, commenting in the New York Times says, we're not supposed to obey Jesus. We're supposed to obey her. You see that? And I might ask Rachel Bird, I might say, are you telling me that I can't live out my religious beliefs? Is that what you're telling me? Are you telling me to not only go against my religious beliefs, but that I have no right to the free exercise of religion? That the First Amendment does not apply to me. It only applies to you as an atheist or an agnostic or whatever you are. How does that make any sense? Why don't you just believe what you believe in the privacy of your own home? Why do you get to bring your beliefs to the public square, but religious people don't? Why is that? And if you think it's a separation of church and state problem, you need to go back to the first segment of this show if you're just tuning in. It has nothing to do with separation of church and state. Everybody's trying to legislate morality. The only question is whose morality? This lady goes on to say this, but Do not use your religious belief to argue that your right to free speech is infringed upon when you are asked to bake a cake for a same-sex couple, provide birth control under your company's health insurance plan, deny science, etc. In short, do not use your religious beliefs to deny my right to live as I see fit. I might say to her, you're denying my right to live as I see fit. I mean, when there is a conflict between my right to live as I see fit and your right to live as you see fit, why do you automatically win? Why does the religious person have to give way to the secular person? Why is that the case? doesn't say that anywhere in our Constitution, anywhere in our laws. Why do you get to dictate what religious people can and can't do? Personally, when it comes to business, this bake-a-same-sex-couple-cake uh, business, Personally, I think you ought to be able to do business for whom and with whom, whomever you want. I think I think somebody who uh, believes in the same sex uh, uh, in same sex marriage ought not to. If they say say they're uh say they're a, a t shirt maker, they shouldn't have to print up pro Christian t shirts if they don't want to. And I don't think somebody who's a Christian should have to print up pro-gay marriage t-shirts or pro-same-sex marriage t-shirts either. I think if you want, if if you have the freedom of religion and you have the freedom of speech in this country, which everybody does, then you don't have the right. Let me put it another way. The government should not be able to compel you to engage in speech or religious practices that go against your religious or moral convictions. So nobody ought to be able to compel you to do that. And yet this lady, Rachel Bird, thinks probably, she doesn't say this explicitly, but she probably thinks that only religious people have no rights. Uh, Someone who identifies as a homosexual, I would assume that this lady, Rachel Bird, thinks that that person has a right to deny religious people services but a religious person doesn't have a right to deny services to somebody who wants to promote a message that the religious person disagrees with. So she's using her religious beliefs to deny my right to live as I see fit, but I can't use my religious beliefs to deny her the right to to live as she sees fit. Well, actually, most religious people aren't trying to, aren't trying to stop you from doing anything unless it's an inherent evil, like killing your children. And the reason we're for natural marriage and not same-sex marriage is because the best way to perpetuate and stabilize society, which is the reason the government's involved in marriage to begin with, is to recognize marriage between a man and a woman, natural marriage, over any other sexual relationship. And I I talk about that at length in the book, Correct Not Politically Correct, How Same-Sex Marriage Hurts Everyone. I'm not going to go into all the argumentation here. But the point here is this is not some arbitrary claim. This is the fact that marriage is what it is because there are biological realities and parenting realities that can be best that, that, that can be best carried out and sometimes only carried out by a man and a woman. And that's why marriage is between a man and a woman. She goes on to say this. To influence public policy, which denies millions of women, minorities, and children access to health care, abortion, voting rights, civil rights. (laughs) Wait, wait, wait. Denying children access to health care? You want to deny them a right to life. Because in the very next, a few words later, you talk about abortion. Isn't that a blatant contradiction here? You're saying you're interested in children's health care, yet you're for killing them. If a if a mother doesn't want the child. And why are some of the things you mentioned rights? What do you mean by rights? Where do rights come from? Newsflash, rights don't come from governments. If rights come from governments, you don't have rights, because a government can if a government can give your rights to you, then you then they can take them away from you, which means they're not rights, they're just preferences. No, rights come from God. This is what our Declaration of Independence says. If there is no God, there's no right to anything. And it says that governments are instituted among men to secure these rights. In other words, governments secure the rights you have. They don't give you your rights. They're not supposed to take away your rights. They're supposed to secure them. And when governments fail at securing your rights, according to the founders of this country anyway, the people have the right to get a new government. So just like many atheists and agnostics do, This lady, Rachel Byrd, is actually stealing from God to try and make her case. Because unless God exists, there's no rights to anything. Everything's just a matter of opinion. So you might ask people who say they have certain rights, where do rights come from? And what do you mean by rights? And by the way, how'd you come to that conclusion? There are so many assumptions underlying this, what we might call rant, a well-put rant, that are unexposed. And that's why you have to ask questions to expose these assumptions. What do you mean by that? How'd you come to that conclusion? Have you ever considered? What do you mean by rights? Where do rights come from? Then she goes on to say, I'm simply fed up with the hypocrisy of so-called religious people. Well, actually I am too. I I have to agree with her on that. We're, We're all hypocritical. By the way, that's why we need a savior, okay? Because if we weren't hypocrites, if we weren't people who who uh, sinned, we wouldn't need a savior. In any event, she says, I'm simply fed up with the hypocrisy of the so-called religious people in this country preaching to the rest of us who simply want to live our lives freely and openly without the burden of dealing with someone else's gods foisted upon us. All right, let me just change a couple of words in what she just said. I'm simply fed up with the hypocrisy of the so-called non-religious people in this country preaching to the rest of us who simply want to live our lives freely and openly without the burden of dealing with someone else's opinions foisted upon us. See, she's doing the same thing that she's claiming we're doing. Who, I might ask her, other than Muslims, is telling you that you have to worship certain gods? We're not. We're simply telling you that there are certain rights and wrongs that need to be obeyed. We're not legislating religion. We are legislating morality. You're trying to impose your moral position. We're trying to impose our moral position. But we hope that our moral position isn't just our moral position. It's the position. It's grounded in the nature of God. It's self-evident, as Thomas Jefferson said. And it's actually what the Apostle Paul said. That the Gentiles do not have the law, of the law written on their hearts. Romans chapter 2. So, don't buy into this idea that you can't impose your moral point of view. You're not trying to impose your moral point of view. You're trying to impose the moral point of view. And that's the one that coincides with God's nature now we're going to get to some of your other questions as we go here i got to mention that the apologetics conference next week is coming to charlotte north carolina i'll be there many others will be there including Rob zacharias josh mcdowell norman geisler jay warner wallace you want to be a part of that ses.edu and then in a couple of weeks toward the end of october i'll be out in uh, colorado springs uh, for another conference out there, the Spyglass Conference, Josh McDowell will be there, Bob Cornuke, my friend, The Real Indiana Jones, many others, Jason Elam, the former kicker for the Broncos, who uh, is a bit of an apologist himself now. If you want to be there, go to our website, crossexamine.org, click on events, you'll see it. And next week I'll be at McNeese State, Tuesday night, this coming Tuesday in Louisiana. I'll tell you more about that right after the break. Don't go away.
0: If you find value in the content of this podcast, don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find more. Just type cross-examine or Frank Turek on the search bar. Also, visit our website where we add new videos, articles, and free resources daily. This
1: Tuesday, October 9th. I'll be at McNeese State University that's in Lake Charles, Louisiana. We're doing I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist at 7 p.m. All the details are on our website, crossexamine.org. Also, they are obviously on our app. If you don't have the cross-examined app, consider yourself a non-Christian at this point. Come on, you got to have the cross-examined app. Two words in the app store, cross Examined. This event at McNeese State actually is in the Holbrook Student Union. It's, of course, free. We'll take a lot of questions like we always do. It'll be streamed live as well. If you miss it, uh, you can actually watch it. Uh, If you're not in the Louisiana area, you can actually watch it on uh, our Facebook page or our website, crossexamine.org, because we stream all these events live. We just streamed uh, an event uh, the other night here at uh, Spartanburg Methodist College, which is in Spartanburg, uh, South Carolina. Had some good interaction during the Q&A with an atheist and a Muslim You can just fast forward. If you've seen the I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist presentation, just fast forward to the Q&A. It begins about an hour and a half into it. We had some good uh, give and take there. So check that out. It is on our website, crossexamine.org, and also our Facebook page. Uh, Also want to mention the Apologetics Conference next week, the biggest in the country. Three to four thousand people will be there. It's at Calvary Church in in Charlotte, North Carolina. And ses.edu is the place to go for that. Ses.edu. Click on conference. You'll see it there. And then the next one, I'm going to be at, well, gee, in between, I forgot. I'm going to be at the University of Maryland in Baltimore on October 22nd. And then Towson University in Towson, Maryland, October 23rd. And then the Spyglass Conference in Colorado Springs right after that, uh, that following weekend. And then my friend Eli Shukron, the Israeli archaeologist who I use when I go to, uh, Israel to help guide us he's discovered the pool of Siloam and excavated the whole city of David he's going to be with me here in Charlotte at Life Church up in uh, Cornelius just north of Charlotte on that's going to be an evening event on Sunday when is that that is Sunday October 28th you don't want to miss that we'll get that on the calendar here Uh, a lot more coming up check the website for more Uh, We're talking about this uh, idea that you can't impose your morality on other people. And we mentioned it's not our morality, it's the morality. And uh, I want to move on to a couple of other issues uh, before uh, the the program ends, because you guys have been emailing me questions and I apologize. I haven't been able to get to them in recent weeks. We've had other folks on the program. So let me get to some of those questions. And uh, one more thing before we do, if you have doubts, Bobby Conway, the one minute apologist is running a new program a online course called Doubting Toward Faith. And I dare you, I just dare you to go to crossexamine.org, click on online courses, and then you'll see Doubting Toward Faith there. I dare you to watch the four minute video that he's put together to introduce the course. It is absolutely chilling. Anyway, the course starts this coming week, October 8th. You can sign up anytime if you're taking the basic course. But if you're taking the premium course, sign up sometime during the week of October 8th so you can actually be online live via Zoom video with Bobby. You can ask him questions and get uh, insights from him on doubts and what they are and how you can get past them. So Doubting Toward Faith is a new online course that begins this coming week, October 8th. Check it out at crossexamine.org. Click on online courses. You'll see it all there. I dare you to watch the video. Okay, anyway, let's let's see what some other questions. I got two questions that are very similar. Uh, One is, uh, the writer says, I was hoping you can uh, answer me this question. How do we know the vacuum of space had a beginning? And a sister question to this is, What is the evidence that there was nothing before the existence of the universe? Well, there are several uh, answers we can give to that. Let's give a scientific answer first. And that is Einstein's theory of general relativity shows that space, time, and matter are co-relative, that they came into existence together. That literally there was a beginning to space, time, and matter. Well, if there was a beginning to space, time, and matter, uh, then the vacuum of space didn't exist because a vacuum of space is space. Okay? It's something. It's not nothing. Uh, So space, time and matter literally had a beginning out of nothing, which, of course, as I mentioned before, what leads us to believe then uh, that if space, time and matter had a beginning, whatever created space, time and matter must be beyond space, time and matter. In other words, must be spaceless, timeless, immaterial, powerful to create the universe out of nothing, personal in order to choose to create, also intelligent because you have to be intelligent to make a choice to choose to create So when you think about a spaceless, timeless, immaterial, powerful, personal, intelligent cause, who do you think of? Well, you think of a being like God. How do we know it's the God of the Bible? We don't. Yet, we've got to do more research. And when we do, we figure out that Jesus is who he said he is. And if he's God, then Christianity is true. And it is the God of the Bible that created the universe. So general relativity is one reason we know there was a beginning and that there was nothing other than God prior to ontologically prior to the beginning of the universe. We also know from the Kalam cosmological argument that there was a beginning to time. Because if there was no beginning to time, today never would have arrived. I mean, think about it. You can't live or you can't traverse an infinite number of days, but today is here. If there were an infinite number of days before today, then today never would have arrived because there'd always be another day you'd have to live because there's an infinite number of them before you got to today but since since today has arrived then there must have been a beginning to time no matter how far back it goes there had to be a beginning and if there was a beginning to time again whatever created time must be timeless and time is correlated to space and time and space and matter came into existence together so there's another reason that we know that there was nothing other than the creator prior, ontologically prior to the existence of the universe. And we know also that the vacuum of space had a beginning. There's another argument we don't talk about much on this program. We did talk about it a little bit when we had Ed Fazer on in his book, Five Proofs of the, of the Existence of God. We know that space had a beginning. We know that the vacuum of space had a beginning, that physical things had a beginning because space and physical things are composed of parts. Uh, there are even a, an a, a atheist like say Lawrence Krauss will say that a vacuum of space is a bubbling brew of, of particles coming in and out of existence, according to him. Well, particles are parts and Anything that's a part is composed, and if something is composed, it must be composed by something else. The problem is, is you can't go on an infinite regress of compositions. There has to be an uncomposed composer. Everything that's physical is composed of parts, and something that is composed of parts needs a composer. The ultimate composer can't be composed himself, because if that were the case, he wouldn't be ultimate. He would have to be composed by something outside of himself. So ultimate reality is an uncomposed composer. A mind, we might say. An unmoved mover, as Aristotle would say. That uncomposed composer is what we mean by God. You see, if something is caused, then it has parts which needs to be combined. But the absolutely simple Non-composite cause must have no parts and is uncaused. Now, Ed Faser goes into a lot of detail. He calls it the uh, the uh, second of his five proofs for the existence of God. In the book, Five Proofs of the Existence of God, he calls it the Neoplatonic Proof, which basically is the argument from composition, that everything material is composed You can't go on an infinite regress. There has to be an uncomposed composer. And that uncomposed composer would have to put together what is known as the vacuum of space, would have to put together space, time, and matter. So there has to be something that's uncomposed. Now, I have one other question. I I don't have time to read the entire question, but it's a heartfelt question about parents who have had some medical trouble with their four children. And I'll just get to the end of the question. Uh, The writer says in Exodus 34, God tells Moses that the sins of the guilty will not go unpunished and will not be punished or and will be punished down for generations, the third and fourth generation. Is this part of the old theocracy and subsequent old covenant? And the writer says, the father says, my heart hurts mostly because I fault myself. He says he's faulting himself for the medical problems that his children has. I guess he's assuming that something he's done in his life has somehow caused these medical problems. He does not unpack what that means. Uh, and, and so I can't answer the question fully, but when you're reading Exodus 34, you are reading from the old covenant. If you want to go to the new covenant, Jesus says in Luke 13, he talks about this issue. And I don't have time to go through the entire passage here, but if you go to Luke 13, Luke is talking Well, I'll just I'll read this this very briefly. It says now there were some present at the time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? He says, I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those uh, eighteen who died when this, the tower in Siloam fell upon them. Do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. So Jesus seems to say that there's not necessarily a one-to-one correlation between bad things happening to somebody because they sin or they're worse sinners than somebody else. He goes on to just say that all everybody's a sinner and everybody needs to repent or you're going to perish. However. I do think that there are natural consequences to sin. It's not a covenant or theological issue to say that the consequences of a parent's choice may affect his or her child. The consequences of drug use may affect a child in the womb. The consequences of disease such as AIDS can be passed down to a child from the parent. So that's just the natural way things work. It may be that our sins Uh, the way we may have abused ourselves have affected our children, but we don't always know if that's the case. Obviously, if a a parent has AIDS and passes it on to his child, then that can be a direct connection there. But these other issues that you mentioned in your email, if you're listening to this right now, uh, we don't know if they're directly connected. What you need to do is just pray and put any sins that you or I have committed under the cross and love our children as best we can. All right, I'm Frank Turek. Thanks for listening. Check out our website, crossexamine.org. Don't forget, I'll be in Louisiana on Tuesday, and don't forget the upcoming conferences next week and in a couple of weeks. Be a part of it. Check out crossexamine.org.
0: We work hard to create great content and deliver truth and valuable insights to all of our Cross Examine podcast listeners. If you agree, Take 30 seconds out of your busy schedule to leave us a five-star rating so more people like you can find us. Just look for the cross-examined official podcast, Three Words, on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. We are truly grateful for your support.